dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass in the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Happy October! You know what that means. All the pumpkin spice you can ever want, but more importantly, it is Merlot Me Month. Today I'm sitting down with Michael Code, winemaker for Rutherford Hill Winery in Rutherford, California. Rutherford Hill has been a pioneer in Merlot since its inception, and they continue to honor the varietal. Rutherford Hill Winery are not just Merlot specialists, but Michael was an ideal guest for Merlot Me. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you know that many ask for Patreon. We do not ask on this. However, we do ask that you leave a review. It only takes a few seconds of your time, but means so much to the show. The next best way to support Exploring the Wine Glass is to tell your friends. If you enjoy the podcast, your wine-loving friends will too. Finally, don't forget to head over to the website, explorethewineglass.com, to read the blog sign up for the newsletter so that you can keep up on all of the happenings. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, Somday service, champagne and Cotteron specialist, and a WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. So you and I can feel the vine. That was no branding. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor sponsored by Dracita Wines. Today, yes, it is October. So do you know what that means? That means it is one of my favorite times of the year, one of my favorite months. One, well, because I got married in October, but two, because it is Merlot Me Month. And we are starting off Merlot Me Month with an incredible winemaker, Michael Kood from Rutherford Hill. And I'm hoping I said your last name right now that I'm on live here. Yeah, thank you very much, Laurie. Um, unfortunately, my surname is uh, from the 13th century. So yes, uh, you do say a little bit different, but that's that's fine. We say code. Um, but yeah, I'm happy with code. I've, I've been lived with that all my life, so I'm fine. <laughs> well, I you know, code is not difficult. You know, it's like Morse code or, you know. That's, secret code, right? Secret code. There you go. So I, it's all good. So welcome to Merlot Me Month, and Thank welcome you. to Exploring the Wine Glass. Yeah, you had me at Merlot. Yes, yes. And you know, it is, Merlot is a near and dear uh, variety to me. I do love it. It has so many different expressions. And you know what, I'm an underdog lover. And Merlot is kind of scrappy, baby. It's, it is scrapping. And when people know what to do with it, like you and Rutherford Hill, it is a dynamic and beautiful wine. Thank you. Yeah. And obviously, Patrice knows what to do with it too, right? <laughs> ah. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. So tell me, how did you find your way to wine? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, and it, it's kind of colorful as well, because I did a career test at school and uh, because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And in Australia, you're allowed to drink when you're uh, 18 years old. Um, so naturally, uh, I toyed with all the ideas of being a vet and a pilot and all those fun degrees. Um, but uh, realistically, I have a family of accountants and uh, the oddball out in the family is my dad, who's an electrical engineer. Um, so when uh, financial math came at the top of the career uh, course, uh, top of the list as to what to do, and that number two was winemaking and being a wine enthusiast uh, like he still is, uh, you could see, you know, naturally the accountant's dollar signs come up in the eyes. For him, it was like wine bottles. You could just see it as like, yes, please. Uh, <laughs> I've got too many uh, sterile conversations around numbers. So how about we do something fun and let's do wine? Uh, and he was very supportive, right? He said, you know, um, you know, uh, both your siblings changed at college. They changed what they wanted to do. So why don't you just go with it if that's what you'd like to try? And if you change, it's no big deal. Um, so, yeah, uh, I drove into it uh, mainly because my brother was in uh, is an accountant and he was going through his uh, middle of the career kind of uh, frame of mine because he's uh, 11 years older than me. And, yeah, he was like, man, unless you love numbers, this isn't for you um, or it isn't for anybody. So uh, <laughs> I had some good mentors in my life at a very early stage saying, how about we go and have uh, a look at a different career? That's fantastic that they, you had that nurturing, that that family support to do something that is outside the realm of your typical family base. Right. And then my dad said, uh, you know, let's get a vineyard. I'll sit at the top. We've got the accountants covered over here. And then you can make the wine over there and I can just watch over the top of my retirement fund. <laughs> <But> <laughs> and reap the benefits. In different corners, right? Right, right. <laughs> that is fantastic. And by the way, my dad was an electrician. So the electrical is really near and dear. So I did a little scooping around, snooping around for you. And you are by far like not at all a newbie, man. You have got like 21 harvests under your belt, four countries. Like you have gotten around, done it all, seen it all. What, how does that happen? And what did you take away? How do these different countries vary from each other? Yeah, well, uh, when I was doing my degree, I worked at a bottle shop and I had the most amazing mentor show me the world of wine and really get me hooked. And you can only stand at a bottle shop so many hours a day and wonder what all those wines taste like, especially with, uh, ironically, the vintage that I really wanted to try was an 89 Petrus. Um, and it was at the time $3,300 and Australian dollars, um, which nowadays is probably a steal. Um, so yeah, I, I looked at all the worlds of the uh, wines of the world. And in Australia, we basically have a 50% tax on wine. So all the wines in the in the cabinet were just out of this world expensive. You know, I saw the first growth Bordeaux's, I saw the Grand Cru Burgundies, um, you know, I saw Barolo's, um, you know, there was a lot of the world of the wine to see. And obviously I can see Barossa and all that, but uh, I learned very quickly that you can't, um, you can't tell the story of wine or you can't figure out what winemakers do until you see it and feel it. Um, so for me, uh, you got to get on a plane, you got to get your hands dirty. And most importantly, you got to have an open mind. You know, you get taught things at school and books have books have numbers and th ways of doing things, but they try to make it simple. But until you see it and feel it, um, there's nothing like it. So for me, yes, I've chased the harvest around the world, but I've also 
unfortunately for my wife on our honeymoon, we had a five week honeymoon and I took her to every region I worked at and every region that I kind of wanted to go to. So we did Switzerland, we did Austria, you know, the world of wine uh, generally is the top of the list when it comes to, all right, we're going to travel. What wineries can we go to? So, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. You said, unfortunately, I would be like, yeah, this is like the best honeymoon ever looking at all these wine things. Right. Well, it doesn't tend to evolve around beaches. Um, so uh, wine uh, wineries and wine regions, but food and wine is not a bad way to go, right? Not at all. So and you have experience. You worked at a premier crew. Like, how do you get that gig shut down? Or go? How? Like, and what is that like? Well, I uh, listened to a lot of motivational things when I was younger. And um, I, one of the things I got left with was you got to dream big. And if you don't dream big enough, you're never going to uh, you're never going to be disappointed. So uh, one night when I was sitting at university, I said, look, I love Cabernet and I really want to go to Bordeaux. And I'm sick of looking at the bottles and not tasting them in the cabinet. And uh, sure enough, I emailed every single first growth, second growth, third growth, fourth growth, fifth growth in Bordeaux in one night. I emailed them all, tried to make it all different. I spent about nine hours just crafting emails, trying my best. Um, uh, my French was non-existent, so I had to start with English. And then uh, I just kept persisting and persisting because this is where I wanted to go. You don't learn how to make Bordeaux wines with sitting in Australia. So yeah, to Bordeaux, here we come. And you guys are just going to figure out where, where I'm going to go because I'm coming. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. So from there, you come back to you come to the United States and you find your way to Rutherford Hill. So how do you get to Rutherford Hill? I mean, emails there too? Uh well here it's a little bit different. So the Margot winemaker uh Philippe Ascol, um was at Inglenook. He moved there in uh 2012, if I'm if I'm correct. And uh, I was sitting in Australia just recently married. And, um, you know, the U.S. is the largest wine consuming country in the world. And the Napa Valley is pretty spectacular. Um, so I, I actually came to see him on my honeymoon, uh, which was in uh, 2014. And uh, I said, hey, look, you've come here. What's it like? Um, you know, leaving Margot is a big step. Right. And uh, Francis Ford Coppola did a great job in luring him out. And I said, you know, um, you know, who should I talk to? And he said, actually, you know, I've got a vacancy. Um, so send me your resume when you get home. And then sure enough, six months later, I was here. Um, but then Margot uh, was going through a little bit of a change um, because uh, Paul Pontillier, who was the co-owner with uh, Corinne Menzanopoulos, um, he sadly got bone cancer. And, um, you know, with Paul going and Philippe leaving in, in the space of two years, they were losing 50 years of winemaking. Um, so the writing was on the wall that he was going to go back. Um, Gala was uh, really pursuing me for uh, the new product development um, uh, role, which was amazing. And so with Philippe leaving, I was like, you're the whole reason I came here. Um, but most importantly to me, I've got a wine business degree. So I know that I need to know the customers. And with Gallo's new product development, I knew I was going to see the entire U.S. market and how people think about wine. Because the U.S. consumer is very different in my mind. There's some amazing palettes and amazing wines that I've never seen anywhere else here. So, um, yeah, once I got that opportunity and with Philippe leaving, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Gallo and I, I've got to learn about the consumer because I think that's going to set me on a great trajectory in terms of learning about the world of wine, but then with a the consumer focus because it can't all be hobby, sadly. 
Um, so yeah, you have to know how to make great wine that makes people happy uh, at every price point, and that was a great opportunity. Um, I was uh, always friends with Richie at Rombauer. Um, through the time I met him when I was at Inglenook and, uh, you know, at Gallo, we always admired the Rombauer brand and well, the recent acquisition proves how much they liked him. Right. Uh, so we used to, we used to joke about, uh, how, uh, good Rombauer was and how I was really struggling to replicate a similar kind of wine style. And so there was some, um, some friendly banter going on there. Um, and then in the end, he, they bought the Sierra Foothills facility and he said, you want to come run that for me? And initially, I was pretty happy at Gallo um, because it was such a cool opportunity. I've been the with the team for a, a while, and you know, new products is exciting. You see so many different segments, and you got to make different wines from all over the state. Pretty cool opportunity. And eventually, he came to me the second time. He was like, "I'm not going to ask again." So, all right, let's go. So we went out to the foothills. We did that for two years, and that's just at the start of the pandemic. Wife was able to work from home, so that was a no-brainer. Got to work with Zen and run a site. So that was awesome. Uh, and then, um, you know, naturally everybody had to come back to the office. My wife's looking at a three-hour commute down to Oakland because she works at Kaiser. So the opportunity to come and lead a team here at Rutherford Hill, reinvigorate a 50-year-old brand that has an amazing tenure, amazing facility. Well, you've got to be part of that, right? Um, you know, you can build brands, but to reinvigorate a brand and bring it back to what it is good at. Uh, is amazing. And then most importantly, to be Merlot-centric. Uh, I think that's really cool and unique. Um, you know, they've had the flag in the ground for 50 years that Merlot is what we do. Uh, and then seeing the fruit sourcing that we have. And if you come to the tasting room, we've got an amazing assortment of different wines now. We've got sub-AVA wines uh, of just Merlot, which I think is very unique for Napa Valley. So A, I got to talk about the diversity of Merlot and B, I got to see the what diversity Napa has to offer. And I, I'm pretty excited because I think we're got, gonna give Bordeaux a run for its money this time. All right. And talking about that facility, for those who are just listening on the podcast, they are missing out because you are sitting in the cave. And right. so, uh, I mean, is this a private cave? If people come and visit, can they get in there and see what's going on down there? Yeah, so uh, we started digging the caves in the mid nineteen uh, mid nineteen nineties. So we have four fifths of a mile of uh, working caves, but then we do have this little um, cave that I'm sitting in right now, and uh, it's the cave dining room. So we have a um, for our exclusive members uh, on uh, for our wine club. We do host events in here, and we do host small uh, events for our for our members in here. And it's a really nice, uh, intimate experience, and with no AC, and yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty wild that we've got we somebody had the vision to put this in, you know, thirty years ago. Yeah, I think there's something very uh, mis mystical, romantic, incredible, just being in a cave and tasting the wine. I think it adds to the experience like enormously, but it just it just kind of makes it feel like it's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, the other thing I love about here is that this this beautiful dining room is hidden away around a corner. And as you walk in, you're just automatically wowed because it's such a transformation and the smells are fantastic. And, you know, you, 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 you know, you're here for wine and an experience. So most definitely. So Rutherford Hill, how tell us a little bit about the history of the winery itself. Yeah, so um, I think in today's modern world, we are 
really fortunate because our winery kind of blends into the hill. Uh, we were started in 1972, um, and in uh, 1974, we had uh, Joseph Phelps, um, small little guy uh, who made some amazing wines back in the day. And fortunately enough, I've had some of his wines recently and just floored. They're 50 years old and just doing amazing. But more importantly, he had the vision to hire a Swiss architect, and we basically look like a Swiss chalet Um if you have that kind of mindset and you'll see it just blends beautifully into the hill. We've got all these extensive caves. Um, so with a world um, tenured kind of uh, history, um, we've been really lucky. So the Tolados are the current owners and they bought it in 96 from the Jaeger family or conglomerate. There was an, a consortium uh, and um, the family used to uh, supply a lot of Rutherford Hill back in the day uh, to the broad market. And uh, the opportunity came to buy the facility and they uh, took it with open arms. And uh, yeah, we've been focused on quality uh, rather than quantity because initially it was the quality, quantity was way too high. So the family decided that let's bring this back into a quality house. And um, yeah, we've been doing that ever since. So we used to do about um, 40,000 cases of Merlot and now we're back down to 15. Um, oh. So, yeah, uh, it's been really great to focus on Merlot and quality Merlot, um, yeah, as uh, as we look forward to the future. And what do you think, um, well, let's, before we get into that, so Rutherford Hill, it's in Rutherford? Is yep. that where the winery is? Right and above so, Auberge de Soleil. I'll say that again? Uh, so Auberge de Soleil is our neighbor and we're just on top of the hill above them. So we've got, uh, hopefully in the future, we'll have a, a view that will rival them. So I'm excited for that redevelopment that's coming in. Awesome. And so tell me about this Rutherford dust. Is it true? Yeah. Is it not true? What do we think? Definitely. Um, you know, when you see any Rutherford wines uh, out in the market, you can have a blind tasting uh, and you definitely see that kind of characteristic Uh and I know dust doesn't sound enticing, but there's definitely that kind of, uh, it, I think uh, as as people, we kind of assimilate it uh, just to make it a little bit more simplistic, but there's definitely that unique aroma that, that Rutherford has to offer. And for me, it kind of rivals what you would see in the Margot Appellation. You know, if you go to St. Julien, you get more chocolatey. Well, that's kind of what you see in um, similar kind of characteristic in Calistoga. So, yeah, for me, uh, Margot and Rutherford have some similarities with that really nice, dusty, earthy character. I had been to a uh, master class on the wines of Macedonia. And nice. it, yeah, it was an incredible experience, but every single wine had something that I was relating to a similar concept as Rutherford Dust. It had that same, every wine had this same unique characteristic. And at the end of the master class, I went up to the to the Psalm who was running the class and I started talking to him. I'm like, you know what these remind me of? The concept of Rutherford dust. Like you can always tell a Rutherford wine because of the Rutherford dust. And you, these wines all have that same similar thing. And we geeked out for quite some time. He went, he opened another bottle. We sat down, we were drinking. Uh, it was, so I completely agree. There is something about Rutherford that gives out that same characteristic, um, bottle after bottle. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah. And so tell us about, um, the, the passion that you 
and Rutherford Hill has for Merlot? Yeah. Um, well, for me, I, I've really taken a lot out of my time in in France. You know, I spent time in the Rhone as well as in um, Bordeaux, and then under further tutelage from Philippe at Inglenook. Um, so for me, every place and every parcel has um, has its own unique personality. And as a winemaking team, um, I think we've just our job is just to try and bring that personality out. I don't want to mask it. I don't want to do anything. Uh, and I sweat the detail. So, um, you know, the first thing I did when I got here, we had about 100 different lots. I went through every single one, had them all looked, looked at all of them. And then when we started to, you know, to trying to grade the wines and the, and the different blocks, I got a feel for those. And then uh, on all the really on all the blocks, I started to focus on what each Cooper did. And my poor assistant winemaker, he was really kind of wind out. I guess is is the right word. <laughs> but I'm like, we got to get this right because certain barrels and um, certain barrels just don't do it justice, and uh, others do a great job. And we need to figure that out. The accountants hate it because they're like, why do you need twelve different Coopers? I'm like, well, I need three Coopers for this one, two for that one, and three for that one, and you know, but that to me is important because, um, you know, if you have the wrong barrel, it can make all the difference and it's easy to show you, but it's not easy to tell you, you know, words mean one thing, but until you taste it, you wouldn't see it. Um, so I, uh, I've been fortunate with that and I really wanted to sweat the detail. And I think with that, not only do you see the wine's personality, but you see my passion and my personality coming through and that I want that to be every, every time you stick your nose in there and you're, you catch on to the Rutherford dust, you know, you want that mysteriousness to continue. It's like, what else do I smell in there? And then every time you smell, you want to see something different. And to me, that's that's what wine is. And um, if you're not passionate about it, this is not the right game. And so when you came in, did you did you basically start with zero in terms of knowledge of the Rutherford Hill Merlot? And did you start your own spreadsheets? You started that whole thing? So, or did they give you, well, this is what we've done in the past. Yeah, I must say, uh, I've been very fortunate with the family. Uh, the Talata family were nothing short of supportive. Uh, when I first came in here, uh, for me, the most important thing when it comes to starting at a winery, and I learned this from a really my mentor that I have a, uh, in the Rhone Valley. He's now with uh, Chateau de Nelise, um in Chateau Neuf de Pape. Uh, he was at Chevrolet when I was there. Um, and... For me, the most important thing that he taught me was when you go to a winery, if they have a vision um, for where they want the winery to go and where the wines want to be, meeting that expectation is near impossible. And so if you want a winemaker to make a wine that you want that is difficult to articulate and understand, then you're going to constantly be fighting uphill. And so the thing is, if you want to know if you want me to take this winery to where I think it can go, it's much easier to hit those goals and expectations. And you can take people on the journey because you're explaining what you're trying to do. And, you know, you can go to the critics and say, this is why I did this to achieve this. So for me, the family was like, hey, we just want Mother Rutherford Merlot, uh, Rutherford Hills Merlot to be one of the best. Um, you've got all the training. I'm not here to tell you what to do. So you go do it and we'll help you do it. Um, but you you take this winery to where you think it needs to go. Uh, and that, to me, is a testament to how good this family is in terms of commitment to making great wine uh, and putting their name behind a brand that they believe in. So, yeah, that and, you know, I agree. That's the way to go, because, I mean, you see it, you see it in, you know, to take it out of wine. You see it in sports all the time. If you have an owner, 
my husband is a Redskins, Commanders, whatever team name they are now, right? And Dan Snyder, the owner, was the biggest detriment because all he wanted to do was what he wanted. And he didn't know football. He didn't know, like, he didn't right. understand, you know, the, he was basically um, strapping the hands of the coach and the team and everything else because they had a different vision than what he had. So I think you're absolutely right that, you know, they're hiring you for your specialty, for your knowledge to allow you to bring the, it to your vision. Yeah. So we have, we're going to start off with the tasting of the Napa Valley Merlot. So this is, um, what vintage is this? 21. 21. Okay. So tell us about this wine. And, oh, there's, yeah, 21. Tell us about this wine. And before I do that, I, I, it never shows up on camera and those listening aren't going to have any, you know, too bad people listening, you're missing out because this is beautiful color. I mean, this is, is beautiful ruby, nice medium. I, I always like put my fingers behind it and it, it's like beauty in a glass. So tell us about this wine while I get to start to enjoy it. Yeah. So I think one of the most important things when I thought, one of the biggest opportunities I thought that Rutherford Hill had in the past, we used to put a little bit of Cabernet in there. When I say a little bit, we used to put a lot of it in there. And, um, you know, we're always a Merlot house. And then uh, one of the things we wanted to come out the gate with, with our, with the 21s and with uh, me coming on board was the opportunity to put a Cabernet in the glass. So I thought, well, isn't it easiest for Merlot to do Merlot and Cab to do Cab? Um, so I originally wanted to be 100% Merlot. Um, in the end, I got stuck in my own head and trying to chase perfection. I ended up with 97% Merlot and 3% Cabernet Franc. Uh, that's pretty for, that's pretty strong merlot <laughs> yeah so i mean like if you've got to chase uh, uh the right bank you might as well give it a go and you've got to put a little <laughs> bit of front in there but also i think they figured it out right so they uh, cabernet franc brings some really nice freshness in there and just adds a little bit on the back end that i really like and for me a wine uh like this merlot should be soft approachable should be really nice plum and spice uh, and should just clean out well. Um, and for me, a great bottle of wine is one where you go, you look at it and you go, where did it go? Oh, and hey, did you take an extra glass? Where's my <laughs> other half, right? <laughs> so to me, that's kind of what I want to do. Um, and I think Merlot, if you have a Merlot and a cab in a glass next to each other, there should be no, there should be no ambiguity. It should be like, that's mm -hmm. definitely Merlot and that's definitely cab. And I think when you put Cabernet, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in there, I find it just muddles the nose a little bit and keeps you like, is that cab? Maybe I got that wrong. Or for me, I definitely wanted Merlot to do Merlot and do it well. So uh, I'm really happy with what we have here for the 21 vintage. It is. It's, it's magnificent. It is light. Um, and that's a compliment. Uh, you know, it, it is light on the palate, but filled with flavors and aromatics and spot on. I, I agree to me when I think Merlot, I think plum or a little bit of that darker fruit, but still bright, not sometimes, sometimes it can, you know, the fruit isn't vibrant and this is nice and vibrant and it has some beautiful spice on, on the back end uh, of it. And on the palate, like I said, it, it's, it's a lighter version. It's not a full body Merlot, which is what it should be. And the finish just lingers. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what I wanted. I really want that nice long finish. It just but it leaves a pleasant taste in your mouth. And I didn't want to for me, Merlot is is a thinner skin variety and shouldn't be anything like Petite Syrah. Shouldn't be dark and gonna over the top like let's thank let's you <laughs> yeah and it is um the tannins and the acid are the, there's tannins there now i just corved into this right before we started um so the tannins are the tannins are there but they're they are you know enveloped into those flavors and the acid is magnificent like it just, it, it makes you kind of salivate to take another glass, which brings us to the, hey, where did that extra glass disappear to, right? No, that's awesome. Uh, I think uh, acidity used right is, is really important to get that salivation happening and makes you go for that second glass for sure. So I'm glad you touched on that. And so let's get a little geeky on this one. I, I want to get geekier on um, when we get into the designated wines, but what do you look for in a Merlot when it comes time to harvest? Um, the most important thing to me is um, uh, you, it's got to taste great. You know, the, the numbers this year, like um, so currently, you know, 23 uh, has been quite a challenging year. We've had a really long, slow ripening period, which has been amazing. Um, and I think in the really hot years, the sugar goes up really high, which means you're going to get high alcohol, but that physiological maturity is really important. So you can have all the great numbers you want, but those are numbers and I'll leave that to the accountants and my job <laughs> is to go this good. So for me, the most important thing is to make sure Merlot is not leafy and green. Uh, I really don't like that in a wine um, or in Merlot. I really don't like that at all. Um, you know, you can have a little bit of dried herb, but even that's a little bit much for me. I prefer it to be a, a real um, undertone. Um, and I don't want anybody to ever lead that my Merlot's green. Um, it but is most not. Importantly, I don't want it to be jammy either. I want it just to have that really nice fruit balance and get that exposure. So for me, it's um, a about picking the grapes at the right time. And then more importantly, it's getting that fermentation right. You know, you can extract everything out of it, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily what you want to do with Merlot. So, yes, getting that really nice balance and making sure that you don't pull out the worst of it, but pull out absolutely all the best you can. And now, a word from our sponsor. Exploring the Wine Glass is brought to you by Dracaena Wines. Dracaena Wines is an artisan winery located in Paso Robles, California. They have been producing wine since 2013. Their first vintage began with one wine, their classic Cabernet Franc, which received a 91 in wine enthusiast. Since then, they have increased production as well as expanded their portfolio, have received many accolades, including multiple double gold medals and consistent 90-plus ratings. Visit their website, www.dracinawines.com, or use the link in the show notes to schedule a private tasting and to see their entire portfolio. Purchase your award-winning wine and let Dracina Wines help turn your moments into great memories. And in terms of that extraction, because Merlot um, can very easily, I, in my opinion, be overly extracted, are you are you cold soaking? Are you pressing quickly? What what are what is your thought process and how you are processing this wine? 
That's a really great question. Um, I kind of change a lot. Um, so I do like the cold soak. Um, science says to not do it as much, but reality says that it actually works quite well. Um, I find it's really good at helping the fermentation uh, and the um, the decomposition. Decomposition isn't a great word, but kind of like the breakdown of the skins and they're helping release a lot of those polysaccharides and a lot of those tannin structures in there. Um, so I think combining that with some really good fermentation techniques. So, um, you know, not pumping it over too much. I taste it daily. I uh, always have my assistant winemaker attached to my hip. I'm like, I use them as a sounding board. Everybody's got different taste thresholds and everybody sees something different. So I've come to learn his palate and I think he's come to learn mine and I get stuck up on some things. You know, I really don't like green and I really don't like harsh tannins and he notices bitterness a little bit better than me. I'm like, so we kind of use each other as great sounding boards. So that has been awesome um, in terms of a some blocks we do pump over more and some blocks we don't. Um, and then uh, I think getting the right type of barrels in has helped. So some blocks can handle a little bit more new work and some definitely can't. So, you know, it's just every time just pulling some levers up and pulling some levers down and then just kind of rolling with the punches. But that's what makes Harvest fantastic because this year is so different to last year and different to the year before. But I'm so grateful for all the time I've spent in different countries and different regions and different winemakers with different thinking because I, I feel like I've got a really good uh, idea of what to do, no matter what the climate throws at me. And so Rutherford Hill has actually, they they claim that they are pioneers in Merlot. So what, how do you think Rutherford Hill blazed the trail for Merlot? Well, we um, the winery started in 72, came out the gate in 74 with Merlot, originally started as a White House. Um, and I don't think, uh, really that there were many people going in hard with Merlot. Obviously, there weren't many people in Napa Valley then, really. Um, you know, getting in before the, um, you know, the the tasting in Paris and uh, Napa Valley kind of getting on the map. So to come out before then with some Merlot, I think is a pretty good testament. Um, and then also just sticking by it the entire time. You know, we, we went a little sideways, I suppose some say, for a little time, but I think that sideways is straightening up again. So you know, I think um, it's exciting that we've stayed true to what we're good at. And this Merlot that we tasted, the Napa Valley Merlot, this is nationally distributed. So people can find this everywhere. Hopefully, yeah. And if right. not, we can definitely find it at the winery. There you go. So if they come to the winery, though, man, they are going to be treated to some seriously specific Merlot. So you also make, I, and I don't know if you make others, but I have on hand Oak Knoll District, Stag's Leap District, and Carneros uh, yep. Merlot. So are there other Merlots also, or is this your, this is your... Uh, so this is our current offering for Vintage 21 and Vintage 22. Okay. Uh, we're probably going to add a Rutherford Merlot in there. Um, we have our estate vineyard just down the hill. Um, and we put our Merlot um, in a few years ago. So that'll start coming online as well. Uh, this will be the first vintage that we do of it. And so, yeah, unfortunately, you're going to have to wait another two years, but uh, we'll get there. Yeah. And the, do you, you said you have a state. So these wines are sourced? Um, that's correct, except the Chimney Rock, um, Stag's Leap District Merlot. Okay. Um, um, Chimney Rock is a sister winery of ours, and we get um, 
yeah, we get 10 tons from them. So we're very fortunate with that. Uh, I was really lucky when we got here. As I say, the family was very supportive. So we, uh, I asked if we can do a, um, you know, everybody kind of has different stories of Cabernet, but nobody really tells about talks about the diversity of Merlot and having the opportunity to talk about that diversity was huge. So the Oaknall district comes from a Beckstuffer vineyard. Uh, we'd been sourcing fruit from them, and that had been going into the Napa Valley Merlot. Uh, and then the Carneros as well, we'd been sourcing from them, and uh, that was also going to the Napa Valley Merlot. They still do most of the fruit, um, but I pick the eyes out of it, and we use the best of that for our DTC wines, which are only 400 cases. Um, but yeah, uh, those are pretty fun wines to work with and fun parcels. Um, but the beauty is that you get to see different soils, different aspects, um, and obviously different conditions. Carneros is lifo, so last in, first out in terms of heat. So it's got the longest ripening out of everybody. Okay. And in a, in a cool year like this year, it's going to be challenging, but it'll be fun. But in a in a good year like last year, when I say last year, vintage 22, uh, the depth and concentration is fantastic. I mean, you still see it in 21, but I'm excited for 22 as well. So let's break these wines down a bit. So the Oak Knoll District, how do you, how would you describe the vineyard site at this, where you're getting this fruit from? Yeah, so the whole idea, what I wanted to do in the tasting room was talk to people about the Napa Valley Merlot. Uh, and then I wanted to have that. So I wanted to have four glasses. You've got Napa Valley Merlot, which comes from all over Napa Valley um, and nothing too specific in terms of, you know, what we just wanted to make great Merlot. The Oak Knoll and Stagsley, basically, they're the kind of closest I could get to being a very similar uh, latitude. So in terms of Napa Valley, so Oak Knoll is on the western foothills. Um, so it gets all the mornings. Um, it, it gets all the morning sun. And then the Stag's Leap is on the eastern foothills and it gets all the afternoon sun. Mm -hmm. So the idea or what I tried to do there was to show people what morning exposure does versus afternoon. And I think the wines talk to themselves. You know, when you have them in, in the glass next to each other, the oak knoll is uh, the tannins are a lot softer and a lot longer. It's less kind of that dark red fruit. And, um, you know, the the... The palate is just so much more elegant and longer and just really enticing. And then the Stag's Leap has what I would call Stag's Leap um, through and through. You know, you've got those really nice cues of really dark upfront red fruit. You've got that really nice olive leaf in there and that um, hallmark mid-palate weight that is just fantastic. But it's a little bit shorter than the Oak Knoll. So, you know, when people taste the, the two wines next to each other, it's like, wow, that's really cool what uh, morning exposure and what afternoon exposure can do and the difference it can make. Uh, and then after you've got east and west exposure, I've got the most southern exposure. So I think the Napa Valley Merlot is a good composition of what North Valley and South Valley and East Valley and West Valley can do. But the Carneros, I think, is a unique beast in terms of it's the most southern part, part of the valley. It's right on top of the bay and just showing you what long, slow ripening can do and the impact on color. So you know, those three glasses should be distinctively different. And I think uh, anybody who comes in and uh, wants to see what Merlot can be in different regions would get excited with that. So the fact that Merlot is an offspring of Cabernet Franc, do we have issues, especially in that Carneros region, right, um, being so close to the bay of Purazines? Do we 
need to concern That's a great question. I think the Beck Stuffer team down there, um, Jim Lewis is the is the vineyard manager down there. If you think I know detail, that guy knows way more detail than me. <laughs> he sweats the minutiae on um, the way he prunes it. He, uh, I said to him, you know, you go down there and there's about five different iterations of Merlot and the way the canopy is hung. He's like, this clone here needs to be in a Z shape. Uh, you know, if you're looking down at the at the vine, it needs to be in a Z shape. Um, it needs to be a split cordon. It needs to be three buds this side, three buds that side. And then this clone here needs to be five buds wide and it needs to be in a perfect VSP. And then this one needs to do that. And this one needs to do that. And that guy knows his stuff and he knows how to make sure that he gives us the grapes we want. And he's so on it. And I mean, that guy has been doing it for 30 plus years and he is super passionate about Merlot and how to do it right. So I can assure you we won't have problems with pyrazines in there for some time. <laughs> and what about the soils within each of these districts? Yeah, I think um, those are dramatically different as well. Um, you know, the Carneros is very sandy soil and pretty shallow. Um, so those can get stressed relatively quickly. And I think Jim knows exactly how to manage that really well. As you go further up Valley, it tends to get a little bit more fertile, a little bit uh, richer and a little bit heavier. So, you know, stag leaping on the foothills uh, of the east side tends to have a little bit more of that kind of Atlas Peak, um, harder, more uh, kind of iron rich kind of soils. But um, the Oak Knoll side is probably a little bit more um, heavier very subtly it's uh, but it's probably got a little bit less of that kind of iron in there and it's a little it's on yolo loam uh, yolo loam is kind of like a black cracking kind of clay but you know uh the soil is just a little bit heavier there and deeper than it would be in stagfleet and do you have i know i hate when people ask this question but i'm going to ask it anyway the we're going to go by expressions yep do you have a favorite expression of Merlot? Uh, yeah, any anything or any wine that somebody wants to share uh, that they're passionate about. <laughs> the whole reason I get into wine um, and I get all the time is like, what do you love about wine? I love it when people are passionate about something because politics divides people. Um, but very rarely do you see a very intimate side of somebody when they're passionate about something. And for me, when people have a glass of wine in their in their hand, no matter what your anything that any biases or anything you have, wine just is like it's unique to you because your palate is different to everybody. Everybody's Absolutely. got different thresholds. But when I see people's eyes light up and their like heart comes out about you know what, I really love Carneros. It's deep, rich, and delicious, and I just love the density. And then the next person goes, you know what, you know, that oak knoll just crushed it for me. It's just so long and soft and velvety. And like, I don't need all that depth and concentration. I like this. And you can just see people have a healthy discussion and everybody kind of gets on like, you know what? Yeah, that's great. But nobody kind of goes, no, you're wrong or blah, 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 blah. It's You see very intimate, passionate sides of people. And I would love, I've had a few distributors come out and you generally see people bat for their own wine, but nobody... Nobody actually says, no, you're wrong or whatever. I'm like, no, that's really cool and see different perspectives. People tend to open up a little bit more, and I love that about wine. And uh, I'm very happy when I see these Merlots, the people getting divided. You know what? I really love this, and I love that, and I think that's awesome. So for me, being able to provide that opportunity is the most important thing to me. The 
the contrast between the three. So just for people who are listening uh, or watching, what's the distance of, approximately between the Oak Knoll district, the Stags Leap distant, uh, district and Carneros Lake? The districts themselves, well, they border each other, really, the Stags Leap and the um, and the Oak Knoll, but the vineyards are basically on complete opposite sides of the valley. And I try to get something, I think telling the story is a little bit easier when one is legitimately on the foothills of one side and the other one's legitimately on the foothills of the other. So they're the furthest they could be apart, uh, which is great. Um, but yeah, Carneros is probably, I don't know, as the crow flies, no more than 20 miles away. Um, but the thing is, the way the sea fog comes in and the uh, and the San Pablo Bay and what an effect it has, uh, it's so dramatically pronounced in Carneros because obviously the sea fog goes up the valley, um, and then you've got all that heat trapped in Calistoga. So you kind of always, um, you know, you have that diurnal shift, but it's probably more dramatic in um, in Carneros than anywhere else. If you could design the perfect vineyard site you don't need to say which district or whatever but the perfect for district the perfect soil type perfect location vineyards directions all of that if you could design the perfect one for merlot can you do that or would it what would it be like i think that's uh yeah that's a loaded question that's gonna end me and get me in some trouble <laughs> <laughs> um i like to think that carneros uh, if you could i would I would still do a blend of the region because I think there's things that I like in all of them. So I'm going to be a politician and sit on the fence and that I would love to sit, straddle some regions. So I think Carneros, I think um, doing a Bordeaux blend um, out of Carneros and, you know, further up Valley, I think has its merits. Um, but maybe that's the artist side of me. It's like uh, there's too many options to to commit to one that, yeah, you, you, there's multiple ways it could go and multiple times of the year. So yeah, maybe for this question, I'll, I'll say Carneros is probably the, the most intriguing for me because it's the most challenging. Like in a good year, it's yeah. fantastic. And in a bad year, you winemakers got to earn their money. And so in in Paso, I, we this vintage, particularly 2023, we had such a long flowering period because of the climate and all of that, which that's, you know, causes some issues there. Did Did you see that same problem that same climactic influence by you definitely um i would love to say personally that was the best spring i've had for a long long time it just lingered and lingered the temperatures were amazing um but yeah verasian normally is four days and it was four weeks for us uh even in the hottest areas and i think in carneros it probably pushed on to i mean i think it just finished last week so yeah it is incredibly late year and i think that's awesome um because you've never seen it before. So hopefully now, um, you know, when you te teach the next generation of winemakers, I can be that person that goes, you know, I remember back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> and that goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning of, you know, there's book knowledge, but then there's hands-on and that you, that's why you went to do hands-on because there's not any way a book can teach what you're going to have to do this vintage to, Heal is not the right word, but to still get these beautiful expressions out of these wines, knowing what that climate was previously. Right. 
You know, it's funny you bring that up. My mind jumped automatically back to Rombau. My first vintage there was in 2020, and the fires were down here in Napa. But up there, it was very different. And I remember talking to Richie, and I said to him, I was like, can you imagine being at school with these numbers? We had a wine. So normally what happens as grapes ripen, um, the pH goes up and the TA comes down. The pH and the sugar tend to go up, and then the acid, or we call it TA, so total acidity, tends to decline. And in 2020 up there, I had never seen numbers like this before. We had a wine that, or we had juice that came in and the the normally you pick grapes at about three, seven, three, eight percent pH, but normally you have a TA of about three or four. Um, so we had a, a wine that had a, uh, or we had a juice that had a pH of 4.1 and a TA of seven or total acidity of seven. So just to give you perspective, most of the wines that you tend to see on the shelf have a pH of 3.6 to 3.8 and then a TA of 6, but normally we have to add acid to that. And from a theoretical side and from a textbook perspective, you wouldn't add acid to that, but you need to add acid to bring the pH down so that the wine is more microbially stable and sound. And so we joked, I was like, can you imagine getting that in an exam? And you've been taught your whole life that, all right, well, you'll have a pH of 4, your acid will be 2. Um, so, you know, what, how much acid would you add? And you basically add one gram of acid brings the pH down 0.1. So you would go, okay, I'm going to add five grams of acid and that's going to be where I want it to be. But when your acid is already at seven where you want it to be, but your pH isn't, what do you do? And so we joked about that. It's like, they don't teach you that at school and you know that you've just got to do something about this. So yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that is true. That's it. You know, book knowledge can only take you so far. Right. Now, if people uh, want to learn more about Merlot and remember things in this Merlot Me Month, what are like maybe three facts about Merlot that you want people to say, yes, this is what I need to remember about Merlot? Uh, for me, Merlot is that really happy medium between Pinot and Cab, and it should be bringing the two drinkers together. Um, so Merlot should be soft, easy drinking, should be really nice plum, dark cherry. It should have some really nice spice. Um, and I think most importantly, Merlot is coming back. Uh, it, it went on hiatus for a little while, and I think we got rid of some bad Merlots out there, which has been amazing because I think Merlot, I do love people that say, oh, I really don't like Merlot, but Saint-Emilion and Pomerol are my jam. And you're like, well, that's mainly Merlot, so that's great news. So uh, I think the rest of the world just needed to figure out how to make great Merlot like Pomerol and Saint-Emilion have done for so, so long. So I love it that it, it's coming back and people are getting reinvigorated around it. And with Rutherford Hill being completely dedicated to Merlot, you have like an oddball situation, right? You have something that really is not very common and very, you know, obviously, like, I mean, not seen frequently, you actually have a rosé of Merlot. Yeah. So tell us about this rosé, because this is, I and I have not tasted it, but I'm going to go, this is not a wimpy rosé. No, um, I was really lucky here. Normally a lot of rosés, particularly in Australia, tend to be made with sarnia, which is, means you're taking the juice off the skins. Uh, we whole cluster press these um, grapes of Merlot, which means that we harvest it and we focus the, 
And the whole idea is to make great Merlot. Normally with Sarnier, you're trying to make great red wine and then you make the Sarnier or the, or the runoff juice into rosé, which doesn't tend to work out very well. So to have your eyes on the prize in terms of making rosé straight out the gate is pretty great because you've got to have a different focus on uh, on what you're trying to do. So my time in the Rhone, which is not far from Provence, was pretty great in terms of just talking to some of the winemakers there and what they do. Yes, they got different varieties, but in terms of managing what you taste versus what you would make for red wine is very important. And then uh, how to treat that when you get into the winery is really important. So we do the 100% Merlot in there. We do a little bit of old barrel fermentation, which I think is really important for mouthfeel. And for me, the most important thing is having a rosé that actually has a little bit of follow through. For me, mouthfeel's king or uh, it's the most important thing. If it dies away too quickly and then people aren't wondering where the bottle went, they wonder if like, oh, I've got half a bottle to go through. That's not what I want to do. I want to make a wine that leaves you going back for more and more. So, yeah. And the thing with talking about that Sanye, what you were what you were saying is when you do a Sanye, like you said, your your goal really is that red wine. Yep. And the byproduct basically is a rose. So when you're focusing in on this rose, if we can take it back to geekiness a bit and talking about when you're choosing to harvest it and what you're looking for, when about how much earlier are you picking this Merlot than for the rosé? Yeah, so probably about two to three weeks earlier um, than we would for our regular Merlot. Uh, you know, we focus a lot more on, I'm less worried about green in there. Uh, I'm more focused on more like strawberry. And, um, you know, I'm less worried about the seed tannins because I'm not going to press it too hard. And so, yeah, it's about two or three weeks before. And approximately how much of this rosé do you make? Uh, we make about 1,000 gallons, which tends to be around 400 cases. Um, we like to release that in uh, in spring. So, you know, uh, make it our Porsche Pounder when it's really hot here in Napa at uh, 110 degrees. <laughs> and is this available only at online or at the winery? Yes, exactly. Okay. So at 400 cases, it's kind of, uh, it's not going out very far. So, and this is, I'm going to show it on the black label on uh, the Oak Oak Knoll. Uh, This is, maybe it was better on the white one. This is the winery itself on the label? Yeah, so that's the entrance to our caves. It kind of looks like the Garden of Babylon. Uh, It's got all this Boston Ivy or Japanese grapevine all over the front. Um, and I think it's just so attractive. If you're going to, if you come into Napa, come and have a look in the next, I would say um, next week or so, given it's October, it should be just stunning um, for probably the next two or three weeks after that. So yeah, for the month of October, it's, it's quite seen for uh, Halloween. Oh, yes. And did I forget anything? Merlot wise, Rutherford Hill wise, this is your opportunity to shout out to the world something I forgot. <laughs> no, I think you pretty much nailed it. Uh, I really like your summations on Sarnier, uh, which I should have probably touched on a bit better. And I think you really closed it out well. Uh, I think uh, Rutherford Hill is is coming back with a vengeance in terms of what we're doing with Merlot. So I'm excited to see what people think. And as you said earlier, right, Rutherford Hill is on a mission to make Merlot great again. Absolutely. No doubt about it. You had me at Merlot, as I say, as well. So, yep, Merlot all the way. 
And how can they get to you? How, how do visitors come visit Rutherford Hill? Yeah, so we uh, we accept walk-ins. It's probably best just to ring your hand. Um, but yeah, the best thing is to find Rutherford and then you'll see us on the hill. And can they get in that cave? Uh, yeah, you can. Just ask the right people at the tasting room, uh, for sure. If we're in the middle of processing, uh, people might um, in our area might be concerned for people's safety. But generally, I think we kind of... Uh, uh, the best way is to make sure we at the tasting room know you're coming. So and yeah, if you've got our website, it, it clearly says um, as well the best ways to go about it. But if it's ad hoc, like I tend to do, yeah. <laughs> and what can somebody expect when they walk into the tasting room? Are there? And this is a bad question to ask a winemaker. So if you don't know it, I completely understand. Like, do are there multiple flights they can choose from? Is there any elevated experiences, anything like that? Yeah, so we have an ATV tour. Uh, we have quite the assortment of things we offer. Um, also, you got to look out for a rogue winemaker that doesn't like seeing empty glasses and generally has a bottle of wine that tops of any empty area, uh, any uh, <laughs> empty wines. And then uh, we have a picnic area, which is grandfathered in, very unique to Napa Valley. And uh, yeah, we got some views that are just spectacular. So yeah, you could come up to the picnic area as well and enjoy a bottle of wine and some uh, some snacks of your choosing. Wonderful. And they can find Rutherford Hill on Instagram at Rutherford Hill Winery, X on uh, Rutherford Hill, and Facebook at Rutherhill Winery. And I want to thank you, Michael, for coming on and sharing your passion of Merlot and introducing my listeners and followers to Rutherford Hill. And I got to tell you, this this Napa Valley Merlot is spectacular. And I cannot wait to taste through the rest of them. And that all will be on my social media as we get further into Merlot Mima. Yeah, I love that. And Laurie, I cannot say thank you enough. Your, your passion is fantastic. And uh, yeah, I, I hope that it's more than a tasting, if you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And so I actually, I actually had to contain myself because I always like to have a little bit left to, you know, cheers off. And um, I just was drinking and drinking and I had to say, oh, wait, I'm going to be out of my out of my glass if I continue to enjoy it at this moment. But right now, I just want to raise a glass and say thank you cheers. very much and say slancha. Thank you. Cheers. Irish coffee banana. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Bud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevins. Until next week, slancha. Right now.